You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I caught the eyes of a couple of my students as I was standing up there with a notepad, and the only way I can describe the expression is, oh no. Fear not, as the Bible says, I'm not staying. I'm here to introduce David French. Uh, David, uh, we are thrilled to have here. We've been trying to get him to come here for quite a while. Uh, David is a columnist for the New York Times, graduate of Harvard Law School. He was previously senior editor at the Dispatch and a contributing writer at the Atlantic. He is a former constitutional litigator and a past president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. David is a New York Times best-selling author, and his most recent book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David is also a native of Scott County and a graduate, class of 87, at Scott County High School. So we are delighted to have David French with us. David. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real treat to be here. It's been a while since I've been here. I've been here before. Heck, I... Of course I've been here before. I grew up in Central Kentucky, class of 87, Scott County High. I was at Scott County in Georgetown before Toyota. So that means it's a little town of like 8,000 people uh, and three stoplights. And now nobody believes me that I grew up in a small town when they go to Georgetown because it's really a lot bigger. But I'm going to start today. Uh, I want to talk about Paul's uh, second letter to Timothy, but I'm going to begin with a story Um, that happened on Nicholasville Road in Lexington, Kentucky. So I can share that here because most of you are knowing already where I'm talking about. And I don't know if this place exists anymore, but there used to be, or may still be, a Big Lots on Nicholasville Road in Lexington. And Big Lots was my second job that I ever had in my life. My first job was the most, like, hashtag Murica thing ever, I sold guns at Walmart. Um, I think I had an eagle on my shoulder while I was doing it. I don't know. But the second, the next summer, Walmart wasn't hiring any temporary help, so I had to go downgrade a little bit to Big Lots. Um, Me and my closest friends from high school, we were janitors at Big Lots. And now I don't know if we have any former Big Lots employees here in the group. We might. But when I was uh, a janitor, the way Big Lots worked is just nobody knew what it was going, the store did not know what it was going to be selling the next day. So a tractor trailer would pull up and you would open the back of the tractor trailer and it was like, surprise, we're selling this. And so one day, it's the middle of July, tractor trailer comes up, open up the back of it, and it's selling these Arctic sleeping bags in July in Kentucky. (laughs) Why? So we take them off the truck, put them on a pallet, and I don't know if you've ever seen sleeping bags in the box before, but the box can be really, really big. So we had this really big box on this pallet, and my friend says to me, I bet you can't fit in the box. It was the weirdest thing to say. It was the biggest box. Why would you ever think that I would not be able to fit into it? Why would you ever think to ask me to fit into it? I had no idea what was going on. And he said, 
I said, sure I can. It's a huge box. He said, show me. I was like, this is ridiculous. So I tilt the box over. I get inside the box and I'm standing there. It's like coming up to my waist. And then he says to me, the manager is coming. Hide. I was like, what? Why? But when you're, when you're 17 and your best friend says hide from an authority figure, you do it instantly. Like it's instinctive. So I duck down into the box and the next thing I know, the top is closing over me and I hear the sound of duct tape and I've been taped into the box. Now, that was the plan the whole way was to get me in the box and why was I dumb enough to comply with this plan? I have no idea. But once I got taped in, I thought it was kind of hilarious. Like, this is funny, you got me in a box, I'm taped in. And then it got funnier, because remember, the box was on a pallet and they start dragging me through the store. <laughs> so I'm in this box and I'm laughing and the box is vibrating. And so these, people, these janitors are dragging this vibrating box through big lots in the middle of the day. But there was a problem and I, I don't know um, the last time you were sealed into a box, but the, if you were ever, you will know and remember that it gets really hot and stuffy really fast. Um, and so after about three to four minutes, sweat is starting to pour down. I'm like, okay, guys, enough is enough. And so then they stop me moving. Oh, where am I? Well, I hear the ring of cash registers and I've been left at the front of the store. Well, what do I do? I, what do you do in that circumstance? Like there's no manual for this. So I just sort of sat there sweating, sweating. I don't want, what do I, I have no idea how to handle this situation. And so the next thing I hear is the manager on the intercom saying, stockman to the front to remove box. I was like, yes, I am saved. So the next thing I know, I'm being pulled again. And I hear the laughter and I realize it's the same people who put me in. And I was like, you got to get me out of this. It's a friendship issue now. This is ridiculous. Get me out of this. It's hot. I'm suffocating. Get me out of this. And then they walk off. And all I hear is music. This is the 1980s. So it was like Bon Jovi symphonic score. And I don't know what to do. But I can't stay in the box, obviously. But I don't know what to do. So I just decide I got I to get out of this thing. I have no idea where I am. And I'm sitting there crouched in the fetal position. And so I just, with all of my strength, I knew they had duct taped me in. So it's gonna take some strength to get out of this. I exploded out of the box. Like I just jumped out. And when you're gonna exert that kind of effort, you have to yell. So, <laughs> yeah! And I blew up out of the box. I have parts of box hanging from me. And I hear this scream. <laughs> and I look up and I'm face to face with this woman who's holding a bra up and I'm in, I've been left in women's lingerie and I'm sitting there in my orange Big Lots vest with box hanging from me and all I can think of to say to this poor woman is, can I help you? <laughs> the exploding box stockman. Um, so I think all the application of that is obvious. I'll take questions now. No. Okay. All right. That story, and by the way, can you tell I spent a little time as an interim youth pastor because I had to start with an absurd story? Um, 
Okay, what does that story have to do with anything at all? I'm going to link it. I promise I'm going to link it to today's life in the East United States. Okay, bear with me, but when I was in the box, before I decided to jump out of it, I was in an intolerable situation. I cannot stay there. It's horrible. I'm suffocating that I was afraid to change. It was an intolerable situation that I was afraid to change because I, I knew I couldn't stay there, but I also had extreme fear about what would happen, how would I be humiliated, what would happen to me if I jumped out of this box. And I will submit to you, students who are about to emerge into a larger, wider United States of America, that you're going to emerge into a country where the vast majority of the residents are still in that box. We are living in a country right now where people are gripped with fear and anger and miserable about it and don't know how to change it. That's where we are. People are fearful, they're angry, they are miserable, and they're afraid to change it. And one of the reasons why they're afraid to change it is because they're so fearful and angry. Um, you guys probably know this. I'm not giving you news, but did you know Republicans and Democrats in this country really don't like each other? <laughs> Who knew? No, I mean, it is so bad right now in this country. It is so bad. Let me, let me just give you some statistics. So roughly 90%, almost 90%, between 87, 88, 90% of Democrats think of Republicans as some combination of bigoted, ignorant, hateful, racist, okay? Almost 90% of Republicans think of Democrats as bigoted, hateful, ignorant, racists. Both sides hate each other in this country, hate each other. There's even this thing called lethal mass partisanship. So what is lethal mass partisanship? About 20% of Americans would be actually be okay, they tell pollsters, if a substantial part of the political opposition just died. In other words, fine, we have millions of people die. Are they Democrats? Fine. Millions of people die. Are they Republicans? Fine. And you might say, hey, David, why are you talking about the 20%? The glass is 80% full. 80% of Americans don't want to kill their or have their political opponents die. Until you realize that 20% of American adults is about 45, 50 million people are that angry about politics. They don't, literally don't care if people on the other side die. And do you think people are happy about this? Like, all, against all of the, in the background of all of this rage and anger, are people happy about this? Is it making them happy? No. No. We have a situation, guys, you know this in your world, skyrocketing anxiety and depression. We have huge amounts of adult anxiety and depression, huge amounts. About two-thirds of Americans are in what's called the exhausted majority. In other words, they look at this political landscape and they just don't want any piece of it. Have you seen the Homer Simpson gif where his eyes are wide? He's like slowly walking back into the bushes. That's like two-thirds of America. They'll walk out and maybe on you know, Twitter or whatever, they will say something political and then they get attacked and people are furious and people are angry and what do they do? They walk away, they walk back. So people are angry, 
They're sometimes viciously angry, and they're also at the same time exhausted, unhappy, and don't know what to do about it. Into this environment, you will be stepping either like this year or very soon in joy. Um, no. Into this environment, you will step, and this is your great opportunity as a believer. If you were going to talk about a public that was confused, that was angry, that was fearful, I cannot imagine a more life-giving and hopeful message than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's get to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.7 is almost like it's talking to the people in the box. It says, for God did not give us a spirit of fear. So all of this fear and anxiety that is sweeping and covering the land, this is not coming from God. God did not give us a spirit of fear. But what did he give us? A spirit of power and love and of sound mind. Power, love, sound mind. Let's walk through each one of these three things because this is the way that you can walk into our country and our culture after you graduate from this place. And this is how you can, you can be a key instrument in renewing hearts and minds and transforming lives through power, love, and sound mind. Let's briefly go through each one of them. Power. Guess what he's not talking about? Political power. He's not talking about that. He is not talking about God didn't give us a spirit of fear because we're going to run the place. Okay? That's not what he's talking about. Why do we know that it's not what he's talking about? Guess where he's writing that from? Prison. He is imprisoned by Caesar at this point. Guess what time of his life? Near his execution. Okay? So what earthly power did Paul possess at that time? None. Zilch. Zero. So anybody who tells you that to be a, a witness for Jesus Christ that you have to have some kind of power, nope. Paul had none. He had negative power. I mean, how many like death row inmates in America have power? None. He was a death, essentially a death row inmate when he writes this. So what is he talking about? What kind of power? Well, he refers to it in just a couple of verses later. He says, that Christ has destroyed death. That's the power he's talking about. You, as servants of Jesus Christ, are serving a Savior who destroyed death. Okay? Destroyed death. Who or what is scary compared to death? Right? If death is the ultimate fear, if death is the ultimate deterrent, to anything or anyone, Jesus Christ has destroyed death itself. And so therefore, why would we walk into this world with anything but a sense of courage and confidence? Because not even death ends us. That's the power we're talking about. And so when you think about that level of power, political power seems kind of meaningless by comparison. And yet, how much percentage of our brains is occupied with taking and holding power? No, the power we should be focused on is the power of the living God. Love. God did not give us a spirit of 
fear, but he gave us a spirit of power and love. Guys, this is your moment. This is your moment. If you can love other people in this country, you will stand out as a burst of radiant light. And I don't just mean by being some sort of evangelist or prophet or apostle or whatever. I'm just talking about loving a friend. Loving a friend, being a faithful friend, and you can be a transforming change agent in this world. You might think, what are you talking about? Being a friend is easy. Not when you get older. The percentage of American men who report having no friends at all has quintupled in the last 20 years. The number, the percentage of men who report having lots of friends has decreased by about a third over the last 20 years. People are lonely. I can't tell you the number of men my age who say, I do not have a single close friend, not even one. So this very idea, one thing that we can do for human beings in this moment is just be present for them and love them unconditionally. I know that has made a huge difference in my life. A huge difference. And guess what? Our friends don't have to agree with us on everything. They don't. They don't. When I was, uh, in, in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq. I served as a JAG officer for the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment during the surge. And I was a reservist, so I was brought in uh, to join an active duty unit. And for those of you who know anything about the military, you know that the active duty looks down on the weekend warriors like me, like we're not real soldiers. And so when I joined this active duty unit as the only reservist out of 800 guys who are in my squadron who were active duty, I felt very isolated and very alone. I will never forget how alone I felt when I landed in Iraq in November 22nd, 2007 in the early, early, early morning hours. And I was greeted by one guy, one guy, his name is Leo Broadhead. He and I could not be more different. I am a white, southern, evangelical, at that time, Republican conservative. He is a Mexican-American immigrant, naturalized citizen, former Mormon, former Catholic, who currently says he's an agnostic who only worships the Hubble Space Telescope because it can see farther than anybody. Uh, I've asked him if he's changed his small g god after the Webb Telescope was launched, but he's still hanging with the Hubble. Um, but he was right there for me in day one. He was there with me, stood with me, was my friend. Before he knew me, he had an intention, formed an intention to welcome me and to be my friend. And over the course of that year, we became utterly inseparable, inseparable. He's an agnostic. You know, one of the things when you serve downrange, you're not allowed to go anywhere by yourself ever. You always have to have somebody with you. And so sometimes when I needed to go to chapel, the only way I could go to chapel is if my agnostic friend went with me. So he said, I'm going to chapel with you every time you go so that you can go to chapel. That's my agnostic friend. And yet, in spite of these differences, we became so close so tight. And what I would tell you is that having a friend in a friendship like that, A, is life transforming for the people within the friendship, utterly life transforming, but at the same time, it is a testimony to others.
because they can see what friendship and what love looks like and try to incorporate that into their lives. And now, it doesn't always mean that, uh, you know, friends are always nice to you. Uh, when at the very end of the deployment, I was leaving a little earlier. I was a huge Romney guy. Leah was a huge Obama guy. This was 08. And I, Romney had been out for a long time. But I knew people in the Obama world. And so as a gift, I got Leo uh, prime tickets to Obama's inaugural in 08. So my nice, magnanimous gesture, I gave him these tickets. And so he goes, he's so grateful. And at the very end of it all, he sends me a video of thanks, thanking me. And in that video, he does it where the camera is looking at his face as George W. Bush's helicopter is light, right, uh, lifting off for the last time. And he turns to George W. Bush and sings the na-na-na-na, na-na-na. That was his thank you to me. I was like, you're a jerk. Uh, but the bottom line is, loving other people is going to be your radiant testimony in this world. That is going to be your radiant testimony in this world. And what does it look like to love other people? We know what it looks like. We know what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. We know what the fruit of the Spirit is. We know kindness, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Not only against such things there are no law, for such things there is great need. Great need. All right, let's go to the last one. We've done power. We've done love. Sound mind. I don't know, guys. Do you think we need a lot of sober judgment and sound minds right now? We live in an era in which people are being blown and tossed, not by the wind, but by the latest 22-second TikTok analysis of the Gaza war. Come on. Okay, really, seriously, what are we even doing with the way we consume knowledge in this country? I'll tell you another way you can be a radiant testimony in this world, just not being swept up in stupidity. Like, I'm not kidding. If you just have some sober judgment and a sound mind and you're just like, let's take five seconds here before we go ahead and conclude that the moon landing was faked. You know, can we take 10 seconds before we conclude the entire medical establishment is wrong and horse dewormer actually cures COVID? Can we take a few moments before we reach these wild conclusions about elections, about pedophilia, about you name it, that are driving Americans nuts, driving us crazy. You can be a testimony of faith and steadfastness just by taking a beat. I'm not even kidding. It's the easiest era in the world in some ways to not to have a sound mind to contrast with the rest of the world if you just take five seconds and a deep breath and read things from smart people as opposed to viewing things from unknown influencers. This is something that is going to be and can be a great gift to our society is if we just have sober judgment, sound mind, and we're not blown and tossed by TikTok or by Reels or by Twitter or by Threads or by Reddit or wherever it is that you're getting a lot of your information. That sober judgment is invaluable. It is invaluable. Let me end with this. George Washington had a favorite Bible verse, believe it or not, that he wrote about almost 50 times in his writing, almost 50 times. 
and it is an absolutely beautiful vision for what this country can be if we treat our fellow citizens with compassion and if we love our fellow citizens. He wrote a letter to a Hebrew congregation in Rhode Island right when he was first president. And this Jewish community was very concerned about this new American Republic. They didn't know the Jewish people had been persecuted for millennia, millennia across the world. And they were here in this new country and they wanted to know, would they be persecuted here as well? And Washington wrote memorable words back to them. Now we know he did not live up to this in his own life, but these words were still powerful and impactful and helped change this country. And he wrote to the synagogue and he said, in this country, every man, this is Micah 4.4, every man will sit under his own vine and his own fig tree and no one shall make him afraid. What a beautiful vision for a nation and for a community. And that's your role, that is your calling. With the power, empowered by the power of a living God, not the power of politics, the power of a living God, loving your neighbors and exercising sound mind and sober judgment, you can be an instrument of peace and healing that allows every man or woman in this country to live under their own vine and their own fig tree with no one making them afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this place. Thank you for, this, uh, for the students in this audience. And Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us deep and conscious knowledge of your power. Give each of us, give each of us hearts full of love. And please, Lord, cleanse our minds of clutter and give us sober judgment so that we might be light and salt in a fearful, angry country that needs your love and salvation so desperately. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.